0: I want to invite everyone to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians 9. Uh, feel free to use your table of contents, uh, click in your phone, um, uh, or use the contents in, your, in the, your Bible or in 2 Corinthians 9. And as a church, we've been in a series, Legacy, considering how, what we are investing in now and the ways in which it can leave a legacy after we're gone. And we've talked about the importance of investing in discipleship, uh, investing in church planting, and social justice, and the next generation. And this morning, we're going to talk specifically about what we invest in each of these areas, specifically considering our time, our talents, but especially this morning, we're going to look at our treasure, investing and stewarding money for God's glory. I want to read our passage It's in 2 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse 6. And the Apostle Paul here, he's writing a letter to a church in Corinth, and he's appealing to them in chapters 8 and 9 about giving financially to support Christians in Jerusalem who are suffering from famine. So I want to read our passage 9, beginning in verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. This is the word of God for the people of God. Paul closes off this passage uh, calling them to give by saying, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God for His inexpressible gift. Upon hearing we're going to be talking about money, whether you read it in the bulletin or just hearing me begin the message, Uh, probably for many of you, your first thought was not, thanks be to God. Just what I wanted, a sermon on money. Uh, For many, money is one of the last things we want to hear Talked about from the pulpit, and and uh, often for good reason. Uh, some of us might come from churches or traditions that preached a lot about money and seem to care mostly about money. And so there's this uh, hesitation anytime we hear a preacher, or pastor, or a spiritual leader talk about stewardship and about money and and giving. And uh, but but there's an issue, All right? There's an issue because the Bible talks a lot about money. In fact, 15% of Jesus' teachings are about Scripture. And the reason is, is because money is one of the most critical parts of our life. And to avoid talking about it and to avoid considering God's desire in this area is to miss applying one of the most relevant understandings of God's will in our life. And I need to be honest in saying sometimes at Scarlet City and me personally, I've shied away from this topic for fear of turning people away from God. But what can happen when we don't talk about it is we turn away, we turn ourselves away from God's will in our life. And if we're unafraid of, if we're afraid of talking about money, then there's there's a certain artificial way we're relating to God. Because the Bible, the, what the Bible says, the Bible is clear, and that it's this. There can be no significant spiritual growth in your life unless you put your money and what you think about money in God's hands. Let me say that again. There can be no significant spiritual growth in your life unless you put your money and what you think about money in God's hands. If you were to go to the doctor and you say, Doctor, I need help. I, I'm tired. Um, I don't feel well. I'm sick regularly, and I, I'm just struggling. Doctor, can can you help me out now? If the doctor is a good doctor, they're going to ask you some questions. They're going to ask you how are you sleeping, uh, what are you eating, you know, what are some of the rhythms of your life, and they may they uh, will always ask you too. Do you have any stressors in your life? Is there anything stressing you out emotionally? And and if you replied to the doctor, hold on, doctor, right, you're getting too personal here. Um, the stressors in my life—what does that? What do my emotions have to do with how I'm feeling physically? You're a doctor. Give me a pill and don't ask me personal questions about what's stressing me out. If you said that, if you said that to your doctor, what would they? Repl- what would their reply be? I'm sorry, but your emotions are intimately connected to your body. You can't separate them. How you're processing life emotionally is going to have ramifications on how you're living life physically. And so the doctor couldn't do their job for you if you tried to compartmentalize the parts of your life. The same is true in the area of money. If we go to God and say, God, I want joy, I want to flourish, I want peace personally, but money, God, we'll leave that physical realm, we'll leave that out of the picture, God won't be able to bring the healing and joy and flourishing in your life that He could otherwise. And so this morning, we want to look at how we can experience wholeness, how we can flourish in the area of our finances. And I want to point you to you know, you may have noticed in our passage in verse 6, Paul he says this the point is this, and I love it when He gets to the point. <laughs> But he's been unpacking this for the church in Corinth. In fact, he begins in chapter 8, verse 1. And so turn there, if you're in your Bibles, chapter 8, verse 1. I want to read the first five verses of how he sets this up. Paul is going to share with this church about God's example of generosity in other churches. Look at what he says. Verse 1 of chapter 8. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. This is really interesting. A few weeks ago, we talked about church planning in Philippi and Macedonia, and now we see those churches that were planted by Paul investing resources to care for people in Jerusalem. Isn't that amazing? It continues. Verse two, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly. Listen to this. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves, not as we expected. I'm sorry. But they gave them themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. But Paul is saying here is that there was churches in Macedonia who were materially poor, but they gave on their own accord. In fact, they begged Paul and the leaders to allow them to give more. When it comes to finances, many of us, we, we know we should give. We know we should be generous. But we don't desire it. We know it's something we should do, but it's not something that we want to do. How can we grow to not just give, but to want to be radically generous? Paul, he connects it to the grace of God. He began speaking of God's grace. In our passage, it's all about God's grace, God's gift in our life. And so this morning, we're gonna look at three ways God's grace empowers radical generosity. Three ways God's grace empowers God's gifts allow us to give to others. First we see how God's grace empowers radical generosity. We are liberated from our greed. We experience freedom. Uh, In verse 7 of our passage, Paul says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Question, why doesn't God wants people to give under compulsion. Why does Paul say this? Why does Paul say God loves a cheerful giver? God doesn't want you to give just under obligation. Why does he say that? If the goal is just to raise money, then this really wouldn't matter. If God's goal was just to raise up money so that people in Jerusalem could be helped, then he could use guilt and fear and judgment and a whole host of things to scare people to give. But that's not the goal. The goal is not just to raise money. The goal is personal transformation. The goal is that even the people giving may experience God's healing and transforming grace. In Charles Dickinson's The Christmas Story, we have the, have, uh, the story of Ebenezer Scrooge. And at the end of the story... After Scrooge experiences, um, after after he goes through the process of discovering all that's holding him back and how he's rooted his life in his money, how does he, what happens? It, It closes with him shouting out of his window. It says that he was laughing and crying in the same breath. He said, I am as light as a feather. I am as happy as an angel. I, a drunken man. I like that. I'm as merry as a schoolboy, schoolboy, a merry Christmas to everybody. This is Ebenezer Scrooge. At the end of his life, he doesn't look, or at the end of the story, he doesn't look and say, yes, you know, I've put too much of my, my life and my money, and okay, okay, I'll, I'll give. If the story ended that way, it would be a little shallow. I mean, on one level, we'd think, okay, this is nice that Scrooge is giving, he's being generous, But he's still in bondage. We see Scrooge experience liberation. He experiences freedom. His heart is transformed. Ebenezer experiences the grace of God, the transformation in his own life. And the whole story is a process of showing how that happens. You know, the ghost shows up to him and he he looks at the pains of his life, the disappointments of his life. It takes him to see how his decisions are affecting other people and leading others to continue to suffer, and it brings him to a place of considering his legacy and his death. What will he be remembered by? There's this process that Scrooge must go, f- go through, where he considers where is his heart ultimately rooted in life? To borrow Paul's termino- terminology, Scrooge has been sowing his heart in greed and reaping despair. Verse 6, Paul says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And here's our principle. If you sow your heart in money and possessions, you will reap despair. God always connects, or regularly connects, generosity to the heart. A few examples. 1 Timothy says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The love of money, not money itself, but when money grabs our heart. Hebrews thirteen five, keep your life free from the love of money. Matthew 6, Jesus teaching on money says this, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And he closes out, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Our heart can get rooted in money and possessions. And when this happens, it is greed. Greed is looking to money and possessions as our ultimate source of meaning and fulfillment. And here's the challenge of greed. No one, we all would agree, yes, we shouldn't be greedy. But no one thinks they are. No one. A confession rarely acknowledged is greed. I think that's why Jesus says, be on guard for greed. Be on guard. He doesn't have to say, be on guard for idolatry. When you commit idolatry, you know you've committed idolatry. When you wake up and this person isn't your spouse, you're not surprised by that. You know. Greed, though, is different. We can always rationalize. We can always look at someone who has more. We can struggle with greed. Greed is when our heart gets rooted in money and possessions. And it wants something that money and possessions can never give. We're on the search for fulfillment. And so what are the particular spiritual desires that you are trying to get from money and possessions? For some of us, money and possessions are a search for social status we want to be accepted by our peers now I remember growing up it wasn't until the I think the sixth grade that I became (laughs) self-aware like a like a robot waking up and realizing there are other people and their opinions matter to me it was in I think the sixth grade up until that point I really didn't care what I wore I would just wear what my mom bought on the sales aisle at Marshall's didn't matter I didn't care about my haircut. My mom had rheumatoid arthritis and Parkinson's disease. And she would cut me and my brother and sister's hair. And now when she was younger, her hands were great. She was uh, a a dental hygienist. Uh, But as she got older, she was sick and and she couldn't move her hands very well. And there she was cutting her hair. And we would literally laugh at each other while we're getting haircuts. (laughs) We're in the sixth grade, that's not going to work anymore. All of a sudden, what do people think of me? I care. There's this temptation that we have to have possessions so that others will think better of us. If we have the right car, wear the nicer clothing, live in the better part of town, people will have a little more respect for us. Are you searching for social status? Maybe you're thinking, you know what, I'm not searching for social status. I'm I'm like The cartoon Doug back in the day, he just wore that same plain shirt every day. You don't care. Maybe you drive a clunker and you're proud of it. You're like, man, I don't care what other people think. Maybe you're tempted to search for security in your money. Uh, That's what Scrooge struggled with. That's why when he looked back on his life, he was engaged to Bell, if you remember the story, engaged to Bell, and yet he kept putting off the wedding until he had more money. And eventually she left him, it was sad. He cared more about money and the security that money could provide. Maybe you think that freedom for you, you want financial freedom. If you manage your money the right way, you will be free really live? The temptation to search for security in our money. There's a number of ways we root our heart in money and possessions, whether it's searching for status or security or comfort or power. What are the ways you're tempted to root your heart in money and possessions? You know, Paul, he gets to the heart of this in 2 Corinthians 8 in the chapter before and he points to the grace of God. Listen to what he says. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. <laughs> How are you rich in Jesus Christ? It's tempting to look to our money and possessions and to see how they can make us rich. And Paul wants to point us to the gospel, to Jesus Christ, for us to consider how are we wealthy in him? You see, in Jesus Christ and through the gospel, through Jesus becoming poor on the cross, on your behalf, you are a child of God, a sibling to the king that is, is a status no one can take away. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are eternally wealthy and secure. The problem of worldly wealth is what? It's temporary. As Jesus pointed out, moth and rust come in to destroy. It will not go with you when you die. But in Jesus Christ, you are rooted in God's love. You are eternally secure and will experience eternal comfort Who do you look to for your riches? In God's grace, he liberates us. He liberates us from our greed. Uh, We also see how does God's grace empower, empower radical generosity? We delight in the physical and spiritual flourishing of others. We are liberated from the spiritual bondage of greed, and we are called by God to bring liberation to other people. Again, Paul, he's raising money for the poor in Jerusalem. Uh, he wants them to give so that these, these people can eat. But it's, it doesn't end there. For Paul, the, the, the impact of their generosity is not just that people would eat. Listen to what he says in verse 11. In 11, he says, You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us, look at this, will produce thanksgiving to God. He continues, for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, Paul's saying it's not just about meeting physical needs, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of the service, they will glorify God. This is so crucial. The impact of radical generosity is twofold. First, people will be fed, but also, people will praise God. Every person is both material and immaterial. There is a physical and the spiritual nature of people. And the mission of the church is both physical and spiritual. Our vision is to be a people joining God's story of transformation and renewal. In that mission is the calling to care for people physically. But we care for people physically in so that they would praise God, many thanksgivings to God, that they will glorify God, as Paul says. You see, there's always, there's a temptation to want to choose one or the other. And we see this, this temptation today in the church. There's the temptation for some to just say, you know what? We are about the physical flourishing of others. We want to be about justice. All we want to do is care for the well-being of other people, to bring them food, and to minimize the spiritual deliverance than that can bring. And then there's the temptation of others, especially in the evangelical movement, to talk about personal salvation and simply spiritual flourishing. And to miss the connection to the physical, it must be both. The physical and spiritual well-being of people. That's why Jesus, when, he's, when he heals people, what does he say over and over and over again? He heals them and then he says something startling. He says, go in peace. Your sins are forgiven. It's like, what Jesus? No, I I, I was blind. (laughs) Jesus heals them physically, but he addresses the underlying need that everyone has. People are physical and spiritual, and this is what the church, this is why we are here, You know, some organizations, they can minister to the physical needs of others, but they cannot minister to the spiritual needs like the church can. God places us here to minister both physically and spiritually, and it is absolutely critical that we do both, and here's why. If all we do is minister to the physical, in fact, what I find today, many examples of justice work can be very self-seeking. There can be this temptation if we only invest ourselves in justice work to do it motivated by pride, wanting people to give thanks to us, not God, that people would look at us and say, you know what, that's that's the cool church, that's the enlightened church, look at the good work they're doing with their logo on their t-shirt, thanks be to them. If you do not have the spiritual component to deliverance, then it can be a temptation to just want people to thank us. On the other realm, if all we do is see everything as a spiritual dimension and not the physical and want to just evangelize and pay no place for actually feeding the poor and caring for those in need, what are we telling to the world? What we're essentially saying is, you know what? It's all about joining our team. If you just get converted, come to our church, give money here, do our thing, then you'll find deliverance. And people look at that, and they don't trust it. Then the church is just another sales group in the world saying, join our squad. The heritage of our church is to minister to both the physical and the spiritual need. There is a uh, very interesting, a letter written, a personal re- letter in the second century called the Epistle to Diagnosis And it's We don't know for certain who this person is. It could have been a tutor to Emperor Marcus Aurelius. But it was written in the second century from a Greek who became a Christian. And listen to what he says about the church, about Christians. Christians busy themselves on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They live in their own native lands, but they live as aliens For every foreign country is to them as their native land, and every native land is as their foreign country. They marry and have children, but they do not kill unwanted babies. They share their table with everyone, but they don't share their bed with everyone. They're like shocked by this. (laughs) They love everyone, but are persecuted by all. They are poor and make many rich. They are short of everything and yet have plenty of everything. They are treated outrageously, but behave respectfully. They are mocked and blessed in return. When they do good, they are attacked. When they are attacked, they rejoice as if being given new life. This is our heritage, friends. You see it rooted in the gospel. Paul, the whole New Testament, is writing to churches, trying to help them live out God's grace today. And what it does, it leads to the world looks at the church, and they're in awe. They're shocked. They see the gospel, it cuts down racism. Their citizenship is in heaven. It cuts down on racism. They have a high view of life, every life. An unwanted child's life, a slave's life is precious to the Christian. They have an unusual view of sex. It says they share their table with everyone, but not their bed. (laughs) The pagan view of sex was it's like your appetite. Just take what you want. But the Christian view of sex, it elevated it. It liberated. It was a a view of liberation in the first century. And early Christians were radically generous. They give to those in need. They take care of the poor. That's who Christians were and what they did. Is that said of us today? Do we minister to both the physical and spiritual needs in our community? God's grace, it liberates us from greed. We are empowered to delight in both the physical and spiritual flourishing of others. And lastly, God's grace empowers radical generosity because we see ourselves as stewards of God's gift. We see ourselves not as owners, but, of, but as stewards. And stewardship, as we kind of this final point, wanting to be a little more, be really concrete about what does this mean for us personally. Stewardship requires two very practical considerations. First, stewardship, and this might feel like a no-brainer, but we often miss it. In stewardship, we acknowledge that we're stewards, not owners. That everything we have is a gift of God. Paul is making this point very clear. In verse 10, he says, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Who is the one supplying seed? It's God. It's God. Uh, There is a, a way of looking at life that sees everything as either mine or a way of looking at life that sees everything as ultimately God's. How you view what you have shapes the way in which you manage it. Uh, For example, if I were to give you $100, if I came up to you after the service and said, here you go, $100, I want you to take that money and give it to someone. Probably most would do it. If I gave you $100, you would walk out and think, oh, this is generosity, amen, amen. $100 right here from the pastor. I'm gonna go and I'm gonna give this. If I said to you, take $100 out of your bank account, and give it to someone else, you might look at it a little differently. How do you view the resources, your time, your talents? Do you view them as ultimately yours, or do you view them as ultimately God's? And that God is entrusting you, desiring that you channel what he has given for the blessing and flourishing of others. This requires, and I, and I want to invite you to do this, to take some time to consider your time, your talents, and your treasures. What has God given? Uh, take time to think about time, life on his earth. Every one of us here, uh, one gift of God is the gift of life, the gift of time. Where are you from? What are your joys and fears? What is your story? What is your time? All of us have talents, and the Bible calls them spiritual gifts as a good reminder that these ultimately come from God. What are your talents? What are you good at? What gives you energy? If you could do anything, what would you do? What are the particular ways God has gifted you that you can use to bless others? Treasure. What financial resources has God given? Has God given you money? What money has he given? Has God given you a home? How can you use your home to be a blessing of others? You might think, you know, I'm a renter. Don't have much in the bank account. Do you have a car? Young life needs, kids need rides. You can use your car to bless others. What is your time? What are your talents? And what are your treasures? And here's the second component as we close. You begin, you take an inventory, and then you consider how am I investing this in God's work? And here's the deal you need a plan. You need a plan. We need a plan. If we're going to be a, a good steward, doesn't just get money and give it away, a good steward manages what has been given well. Ebenezer Scrooge, at the end of the story, what does he do? He goes and he buys a turkey and he gives it to uh, Cratchit and his family. Now, if that's all that Scrooge does, really there's not much sustaining impact. If Scrooge just has this enlightened moment, and he says, oh, let me give some money to others and now I'm done. We would think, that's sad. <laughs> but if Scrooge, Scrooge leverages his resources, as a plan to minister not just to Cratchit, but to others in his community. We could look at him and say, well done. That is a wise investment. So how are you planning well? I want to invite everyone this week to take some time to take an inventory. What is your time? What are your talents? And what is your treasure? What has God given? And then prayerfully consider, how are you managing that Well, God, in his grace, has liberated us from greed. We no longer need to live in the bondage of possessions and what we want our possessions to provide. They will not go with us when we're gone. God is allowing us, inviting us into the privilege of being involved in good, redeeming work. We can give cheerfully. We can serve cheerfully. Lastly, God calls us to steward. He has blessed us to be a blessing to others. Let's be people in a congregation that invest wisely so that the legacy of the gospel can continue. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that you are a generous God, that in your son, Jesus Christ, you became poor so that we could be eternally wealthy. God, I know there is the temptation, I feel it myself at times, to want to hoard, to want to find status and security in possessions, to think that they are mine. God, by your Spirit, transform my heart, transform our hearts that we could live in reality, that all that we have is yours. And we live in a world that is yours. And we live and minister in a world in which you desire to channel the resources of your people for the blessing and flourishing of others and the opportunity to engage in that work is a gift of grace. Help us to be faithful. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.